Old Man Winter here. If I had it my way, it would stay winter all year long. Short days, wind chill, black ice and a good polar vortex. Oh, <laughs> heaven. Wait, is it getting warm in here? Your cold snap is over, Old Man Winter. Spring has arrived. Spring. Spring is here, which means it's the perfect time to get away in the Hyundai you've always wanted. Visit the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event, where you can get great deals on all of our award-winning Hyundai models, like the tech-filled Tucson and Kona, as well as the spacious Palisade. Enjoy wherever you go with the peace of mind that comes with America's best warranty and three years or 36,000 miles of complimentary maintenance. But hurry in. These deals won't last. Add more joy to your journey at the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Now get 0% APR or up to 1500 bonus cash on the Hyundai Tucson. Now, during the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Offers end soon. Call 562-314-4603 for details. edition of the show before the show podcast the official podcast of minor league baseball recording for you on a wednesday this week everything is chaos i'm tyler mon along with sam dykstra and benjamin hill gents how are you what's going on sam's back in the ernie banks room today i am in the ernie banks room i didn't even tell you guys that you can just see it from the picture behind me but we will not be doing two podcasts beautiful day for a (laughs) podcast let's only record one no, it's a great day here, and uh, maybe someday we'll we'll do two in a row in in the Ernie Banks room just for just for hee-haws. But uh, yeah, no, this is uh, you say it's chaos on Wednesday. I feel like now we should have started with Ghosts of the Miners, just blown up the entire show. Just gone started this with MILB TV episode. <laughs> yeah, we could have uh, so many ideas running through my head. Next time we do this, like that, there, there will be multiple opportunities. Yeah, yeah. You're going on another trip. You just finished up your trip to Mexico, um, you know, covering the U15 World Cup, not just uh, gallivanting around Mexico, uh, off next to to Europe to cover games out there. We're going to have lots of opportunities to blow things up and then do we things will. out of order. That is true. Uh, keep your eyes out for uh, prospects like Coy James, who was named the MVP of the U15 Baseball World Cup. Uh, four years ago, it was Brady House. Now he's a top five prospect in the Nationals organization. Coy James, who I sat next to on the flight on the way uh, from Hermosillo to Phoenix. Keep an eye out for him in Advance, North Carolina native, a uh, town that I was uh, not real familiar with, but right outside of Winston-Salem. And uh, big congratulations to uh, USA Baseball. Second straight World Cup title in that event. Second straight for this year. Uh, U-12s last month. U-15s uh, this past Sunday. They won u eighteen starting on Friday in uh, Bradenton and Sarasota, Florida. And two of your favorite uh, current or recently former minor league broadcasters will be part of those broadcasts. John Nolan, your friend and ours from the Fort Wayne Tin Caps and Donnie Barnes, formerly of the Omaha Storm Chasers. Those guys will be there. Um, so give them a, a listen coming up this week uh, when U18 start. That that event is fantastic. Basically, everybody who's on those rosters, you're going to see either drafted or signed uh, in the coming year. So that's a fun one. And yeah, I'll be in uh, in Italy. That is gallivanting. I'll be gallivanting for a few days uh, with, with the lady through Italy. But then next week, the World Baseball Classic qualifiers start in Regensburg, Germany. Very excited to be on the call for those. And uh, I'm not the only one hitting the road. Benjamin Hill joins the show. And Ben's got a, another road trip coming up as we're coming down to the final few weeks of, of road trips and in-season content and all that kind of stuff. Um, ben, this itinerary 
is one that goes through, you know, we talk about like the Carolinas is kind of the cradle of minor league baseball, but you're going through sort of the, the upper Midwest, Western New York, great lakes, uh, that type of region. There's a ton of minor league history there. And I know Erie is on your docket. So if you see any wonders themed Seawolves merchandise, feel free to send me a text and I'll Venmo you some money. Cause I know they did a, that thing you do night earlier this year, but tell us about the trip coming up. Yeah. I'm hitting the road one more time for the first time ever after Labor Day because the season goes longer. Um, we're talking here on a Wednesday. I'm in my home office being very angry at the overall internet connection, but you know, we persevere and get by. But on Friday morning, I will drive uh, from Brooklyn, New York to Erie, Pennsylvania, which is a pretty long drive. And I plan on going to the game that night, the uh, Erie Seawolves game. Uh, Erie, I've only been there once before in 2014. And um, I find it to be, I don't want to say a funny place, but I grew up in, you know, suburban Philadelphia area, Montgomery County, Ambler, Pennsylvania. I went to school at the University of Pittsburgh. I feel like I got to know, you know, Pennsylvania really well. But Erie is a place that doesn't really feel like it's in Pennsylvania. I'm not doubting it's like Pennsylvania legitimacy. But if you look at the map, it's so far up in the Pacific, not the Pacific, the, uh, uh, the Northwest portion. So used to saying Pacific is a prelude to Northwest, but it's so far up in the Northwest portion of the state. It feels more like an extension of New York than Pennsylvania. And I believe there's some history there with, uh, you know, Pennsylvania wanting, you know, that little portion of the state to have access to the canal. But uh, it definitely feels like a haul to get to Erie. And uh, I'm really glad to go there again, you know, um, you know, with the reorganization of minor league baseball. Um, there were a lot of doubts about Erie and Binghamton, you know, two uh, kind of old school minor league locales in terms of, uh, you know, making the cut. And I'm really glad that both did and that, uh, you know, double A Eastern League baseball uh, continues in those places. I know there's been a lot of uh, improvements to Erie's ballpark. And, um, yeah, I'm going to get there on Friday night. I didn't make it officially part of my itinerary, but I'll certainly be at the game on Friday night and do what I can. And then I'll be there again on Saturday, the 10th uh, for a full game. And uh, so just really looking forward to getting caught back up uh, with the Erie Seawolves. And um, yeah, Tyler, like you mentioned, the, the, the whole area is, there's just a lot of uh, minor league baseball locales with long, deep history. And from Erie, I'll go to one of those for sure. Buffalo, home of the Bisons. I'll be there on Sunday, uh, September 11th. Uh, for an afternoon game and you know the bisons have roots in various iterations that go well back into the 19th century uh, tons and tons of history looking forward to getting back to that ballpark which again i have not been to in eight eight years um you know that's an interesting place because when it was built uh buffalo was in the running to be a major league expansion team and so they built that ballpark with the potential to expand it primarily you know through outfield seating in uh, a second level outfield seating for a major league team. And if you look at the attendance numbers of those early years in Buffalo uh, in the late eighties, early nineties, you know, they were, you know, top in a million sometimes. And uh, you know, minor league teams just generally do not do that. A lot of them don't even have the capacity that even if they sold out every game, they could hit a million. So, uh, you know, looking forward to getting back there. And uh, then uh, Monday, I'm still kind of TBD. I want to do something baseball related, but that's an off day in minor league baseball. But at any rate on Tuesday, Rochester Red Wings, nothing like a Tuesday night in mid-September for, uh, you know, big high energy ballpark atmospheres. But uh, I'm really glad to get back to Rochester again. Already got a lot of great story ideas. You know, that's a team that, um, you know, it just does a lot of great stuff, you know, promotionally. The garbage plates are just plates identity. Milo the bat dog, um, you know, great front office. It's been there a long time. And uh, and who is believed to be the uh, the longest running uh, organist in, you know, in sports history, certainly in professional baseball history, Fred Costello. 
46 years of the Red Wings organist. And uh, I wrote a story about him last time I was there. I might find a way to write a story about him again, because when you play the organ at a ballpark for 46 years or for the same franchise for 46 years, um, you know, that's something special. So looking forward to getting back out there. And uh, hey, if you're listening to this, uh, when it drops on Friday, I'll be on my way to Erie. Come visit me in Erie, Pennsylvania on uh, Friday or Saturday or Buffalo on Sunday or Rochester on Tuesday. Or maybe I'll be visiting you more likely uh, if you're from that area. But anyway, I'm looking forward to getting back out on the road one more time in 2022. Yeah. And, and you mentioned that organist. Maybe there's a way he could get you could get him to play the uh, show before the show theme song. I'm just saying, if he's oh, taking requests. I could do that. Do you have the, uh, sheet mu- the sheet music handy? <laughs> I don't, but I'm hopeful that he has a good enough ear to just play play our song and see how it goes. Um, but Ben, this whole stretch, I mean, we talk about how it, it's historically significant. And you mentioned Buffalo, and Buffalo is kind of recently historically significant, too, because of the way they played major league games there just a few years ago. You haven't been back since that happened, correct? Like, the, this is your first time? No. Since the Blue Jays played, yeah, that. yeah, and obviously there's been a lot of improvements to that ballpark. I should have looked up the name of it. It's it's changed names <laughs> uh, many times, and I was like, wait, it's not it's not Coca Cola anymore. Uh, Salem Field, right? That's what it is. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, but I obviously uh, there were a ton of improvements in order to make it up to you know very high standards, which are Major League Baseball standards. So um, looking forward to taking a tour and seeing how much changed. A lot of that would be. You know, I'm sure there were fan facing improvements, but I'm sure a lot of that is obviously, you know, the player amenities and the inside. So looking forward to getting a tour of all that. Uh, Looking forward to, you know, talking to the GM, uh, Anthony Sprague, because he I think he got promoted the GM like right before the 2020 season. So talk about a very unorthodox beginning to being a general manager for a team to have, uh, you know, the pandemic canceled the minor league season, the Blue Jays ending up playing in Buffalo um then in 2021 with the blue jays still spending time in buffalo um you know the team actually played in trenton their home games in trenton and uh so just a lot of uh you know strange years over the last couple of years and in buffalo probably no more no place else was a little more strange uh, than buffalo just in terms of hosting major league baseball having to send their triple a team on the road to another location in order to accommodate a major league club and uh yeah, interesting stuff. And it's not too far from Canada. You know, part of me is thinking, like, if there's no minor league games on Monday, maybe I could just, uh, you know, scoot across the border and hit, hit up the Toronto Blue Jays. Uh, I believe they're home that day. So that's, a, that's, a, that's a, a potential option. But, you know, the problem with the Toronto Blue Jays is that they're not a minor league team. And uh, <laughs> that is the problem. The major, major problem, so to speak. Uh, I, I need my baseball to be minor league, strictly minor league. I have a tattoo that says strictly minor league, uh, by the way. I've never revealed that, but I'm not going to ask where that is. Um, then the, uh, the mention of Canada, it like segues us very well to your newsletter, which had a trivia question that I believe you want to pose to us. Well, sure. Uh, this newsletter is the Ben's biz beat newsletter, which uh, arrives in, inboxes and i hope your inbox uh, every single thursday and i uh, had a lot of fun writing it and you know engaging with readers in a new way and yes there is a trivia question which i always call the uh, hopelessly obscure trivia question and uh goes a little something like this and yes speaking of canada so as you guys know and as i'm sure a lot of listeners know right now the vancouver canadians are the only 
minor league baseball team in the country of Canada. But when the 21st century began, the Vancouver Canadians were one of five Canadian minor league teams. Can you name that now defunct foursome, the four Canadian teams that no longer exist, but that were still operating into the 21st century? I got to ask before we start, do we need to know the team name itself or is the city an acceptable answer? Because if we need to know the team name as well, I think I only know one. (laughs) You know, we don't have a a huge score uh, keeping system going here. I would say, you know, you get bonus points, uh, more respect from me, certainly. But I would say just the city would be an acceptably correct answer for this circumstance. Okay. And playing for Ben's respect, I think, is the ultimate point system, really. That is true. Yeah, very much so. All right, Sam, how do we want to tackle this? Um, Well, do we? you want to say the one we're both thinking at the top here just so we can get it out of the way on the count of three? One, two, three. Let's see see if we Hopefully it's the the same. If it's different. What if it's different? Yeah, that'll okay. actually be fun. Okay, All ready? Right. One, yeah. one, two, two, three. The Calgary Cannons. <laughs> oh. <laughs> good, good, good. That's exactly that's perfect. We got fifty percent. Yeah, we're halfway there. Oh, right, 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 Ben. Yeah. Yes, I mean very presumptuous. Just to assume those were correct, but your presumption is correct. Calgary Cannons in the Pacific Coast League played their last season in 2002 before relocating to Albuquerque and becoming the Isotopes and the Ottawa Lynx, who were the last remaining Canadian team, you know, outside of the still existing Vancouver Canadians, played in the International League through 2007. They relocated to Lehigh Valley and became the Iron Pigs. So those are two of the teams. There are two others. Can I just say also that this reveals very much where we're from, right? Like yeah. you got the team that moved to Albuquerque. That is true. Which is and was, and was and rather far west. It also shows that my lack of um, Canadian geography is like, wait a minute, Ottawa was he in the was in the International League? I thought that was way further west than that, and it is not. Um, sorry, Canada. I'm going to get Alexis Brudnicki, longtime uh, Canadian baseball writer and legend. Uh, she's going to yell at me now. Um, okay, so we got Ottawa and we got Calgary. Um, I have other guesses that I believe I do too. Yeah. are correct. All right, you go right, first correct. and then I'll go mine. Um, because I know that they have had a longtime independent team there. I think Winnipeg had a team. Is that correct or is that not? Based on Ben's poker face, I'm not confident in this answer now. That is incorrect in terms of existing into the 21st century man all right my my guess is one that i'm also not sure existed into the 21st century but i know definitely did exist medicine hat correct wow boom that's amazing medicine hat is like one of those towns that i don't really think is very close to anything either like i think it's a hall to get to medicine hat well, tell us about Medicine Hat, Ben. What, what, what are the details? Because I don't have the team yep. name. They were the Medicine Hat Blue Jays in the That's Pioneer what I thought. League. Oh, I should have said that. Okay. Yeah. Go ahead. And, you know, I, I have memories of, you know, just like having tops cards in the 80s. And, you know, um, if a player had less than four years in the major leagues, then the card would also show the minor league stats. And I just remember being a little kid being like, this guy played in medicine hat, you know, and I would think of like a, a hat that had like medicine on it somehow, you know, like a bottle of pills on top or some cough syrup or something. 
Um, yeah, they were Blue Jays and their last iteration was Blue Jays in the Pioneer League uh, through t- 2002. And I actually was having trouble determining if they went on to become another franchise or if they were just dropped from the league. I was looking at my Pioneer League uh, chronology yesterday and I could not quite figure that out, but it was in the Pioneer League, Medicine Hat Blue Jays through 2002. The team you are missing. It's not that far away, by the way. Wait, it's wait, four wait, hours wait, wait. From, from Great Falls, so it's not that far of a drive. Um, yeah, wait. I feel like we gotta we gotta think. We gotta get least, one more guess in each for here. at least a little longer. Uh, Tyler, do you have a guess? It is your turn. Is there anything weird about this? Is it like, oh, there was a you know, it was a team like for example. Hillsboro is right outside of Portland. And now the hops and the beavers did not exist at the same time, but you may not think of that. Like, is there a, no, is there some weird qualification? No, I would say that, you know, if, if you guys don't want hints, I would, I would say that this is just a, a Canadian city and certainly uh, far less obscure than medicine hat. So it's not yellow knife. It's not, it's not, uh, I got to think of some other fun Canadian team names uh, or Canadian city names. Uh oh man. Well, we know it's not Montreal, we know it's not Toronto. Uh we've already guessed Ottawa, Calgary, Winnipeg. Um I don't believe that it is Thunder Bay even though they have a collegiate summer league team there. Uh It is not and you know Winnipeg Winnipeg did have a team in the uh International League. Uh the Winnipeg Winnipeg whips, but that was back in the seventies. Okay. Yeah. Man, there's, they're like Canadian. They're like Tyler O'Neill fans tuned in right now. They're like screaming the answer at their, at their AirPods or their car radio or something. Um, Are we going to feel like idiots when you reveal it? Maybe, maybe not. I'll give you a clue. It's in the same league as the Calgary cannons that went on to play in Albuquerque. Okay. Um, okay. Hmm. Can I spoil that league? I believe I know the league. Yeah, I mean, we're in the Pacific yeah. Coast League. The Pacific Coast League, which means that it's got to be out in the Vancouver region, ish, BC slash uh, Alberta. Um, yeah, and Vancouver. The Canadians themselves were in the Pacific Coast League three ninety nine, right. and then uh, shifted to Northwest League in two thousand. Um, but this is a Pacific Coast League team that played through two thousand four. So oh, who did they longer move, than medicine had? Who did they move to become? Maybe that'll jar something. Well, they were a Pacific Coast League team, and in 2005, they became the Round Rock Express, who had previously been a Texas League team. So if you really want to get in the weeds, the Double yeah. A Round Rock Express moved to Corpus Christi. Christi, Christi <laughs> moved to Corpus Christi. <laughs> okay, and then the new Triple A Express in 2005 were this Canadian minor league team. Oh, I'm just going to say it to get it out of my system. Edmonton. Correct. Yeah. yeah. All right, Sam. Oh yeah. We forgot. I was about sitting Edmonton. on Saskatoon for a while, but I was like, Saskatoon wouldn't be a triple a city. Edmonton. Yeah. That's right. Why did we not get that earlier. What was their, the, the, what was their team name? The trappers, the trappers, right. Right, because I know in recent years that logo has kind of come back in vogue for uh I think there's been like releases of of reproduced trappers hats and such. Um oh that is a terrific question. 
Um, I hope some people paused and like were shouting out their own guesses and then listened to through for the answer because that was really good. It was very good. Yeah, I enjoyed that. And, uh, you know, I say this with, you know, all you know, affection that people who Uh-oh. enjoyed thinking about that question, um, you know, are really, uh, really deeply nerdy minor league baseball people. And as we are, and I realize we have a, yeah. uh, you know, it, it's a pretty niche stuff, but I, I like that there, I know that there are people listening to this who are like, oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. I I'm really going to think about this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, no offense to the good people of medicine hat, but how often do you think of medicine? Yeah. Hat the medicine hat blue jays. This is legitimately an answer to this question. That is true. Um, wow. That's, that's pretty, uh, that's pretty impressive stuff. I'm very happy that we ended up getting it. Medicine Hat, by the I, way, is a uh, a city of just uh, over 63,000 as of 2016. So not huge, but definitely the size of, of certain minor league markets. Uh, but you would, yeah, you would very much not think of Medicine Hat as like one of your top five guesses, I wouldn't think. Yeah, two of well, my I'll takeaways tell, tell here. What. Oh, go ahead, Ben. Well, I was just going to say, we have a long, cold off season coming up. And sometimes, you know, intriguing content can be a little tough in some of these months. I think we should make a point to uh, return to Medicine Hat. Maybe uh, track down someone who, who worked for the team or was involved with the team and say, like, tell us about minor league baseball and Medicine Hat. I very yeah. much like that idea. Um, and I think that there are there would probably be way more people who came through Medicine Hat than you ever would have guessed, you know. Um, including one of whom, and I was thinking this when you said medicine at the very first minor league manager who I ever worked with rocket Wheeler managed the medicine hat blue Jays. Uh, and also another Canadian team, the St. Catharines blue Jays, uh, who became the St. Catharines stompers at one point. And that team was in the New York Penn league right up until, uh, the start of the 21st century. Look at all these connections we got. It goes this is deep. Just turning into remember some teams. Yeah. That's what this is. Let's remember some teams. Let's Very remember good. some teams. Well, speaking of remembering um, some teams, um, oh, unless Sam, you were going to do the exact nope. same segue, weren't you? Oh, I no, I, no. I, I, I saw not. it in your no. eye. Wow. We thought we were going to guess the same team too. And we didn't. That, that's what I actually, what I was going to say. Two things uh, <laughs> just to wrap up that segment real quick. First off, I, I know like, 120 teams we have right now are locked in place for a good long while. We don't want anybody to lose a team. I do hope that Canada gets more teams at some point um, other than just Vancouver. I always thought it was a little weird that the two teams are Toronto and Vancouver, which is like saying a team has affiliates in New York and Portland, Oregon. It's a little far away. We'd love to get that uh, centralized a little bit more for our brothers and sisters up North. Uh, and two, apparently Tyler and I need to work on our synergy. I know. You know we've, we've been doing, doing this show seven for years. years and I thought we, I thought we were going to have it. And instead, yeah. although to be fair, it worked out better for us. We got 50% of the answers right out of the gate. That was very, impressive. that's true. And I, I think only... we work well collaboratively. Yeah. Instead of, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> we're working on a group that's project right. together. Yes. Uh, well, what I was going to say is speaking of remembering teams, uh, Ben also has another element of the most recent newsletter in which he dives into some of the late season, uh, honorings of Negro league teams across the minor league landscape. This has become so much more prevalent over the last five, 10 years or so that, um, and we talked about this last week, but the way that 
teams and franchises across the minor leagues have been researching baseball history in their own communities. And it's so cool to see how this movement has grown to honor some of the lesser known teams um, in communities throughout the, the minor league country uh, or countries, plural. Um, ben, give us the, the rundown of some of these late uh, arrivals here in 2022. Yeah, as the season's uh, winding down, I want to cover promotions while they're still happening. And uh, this will also be a standalone article on MILB.com, also the lead item in the newsletter. And uh, some more recent stuff or stuff that still is yet to take place, um, you know, including uh, Bowie Bay Sox. They've done Negro League tributes for a long time. I actually attended one in 2018, lots of historical displays, uh, team alumni. Uh, but they went in a slightly different direction this year and honored the Mitchellville Tigers who play you know, nearby to Bowie or played nearby to Bowie, but they were a, like a local Sandlot team that uh, operated from 1946 into the 70s. And so they had a night where they um, played as the Mitchellville Tigers and auctioned off those jerseys, which just have an M and a T on them. And uh, that proceeds of that went to the Josh Gibson Foundation. Uh, you may remember, well, I'm sure you guys remember, but uh, you know, way back in February, we had a uh, Frisco Rough Riders uh, president Victor Rojas on the show to talk about the Dallas Black Giants identity. That was a Negro League team uh, in the 20s and 30s in particular. So, yeah, you mentioned Ernie Banks at the top of this podcast. Uh, he was once a member of the Dallas Black Giants. Frisco, you know, is in the greater Dallas Fort Worth area. They, for the third and final time, actually tonight as we're speaking, Wednesday, September 7th, they're doing their third and final Dallas Black Giants uh, promotion of the season. Uh, the Wilmington Blue Rocks with Judy Johnson Appreciation Night. They've been doing this for over a decade. Um, I would really check out that the team put together a great legacy of Judy Johnson page that you can find on the Blue Rocks homepage with all sorts of information about Judy Johnson. But he was born in Maryland, but moved to Wilmington when he was five. Went on to become uh, you know one of the greatest uh, Negro League players of all time. Played for the Hilldale Club teams of the 1920s that were a real powerhouse. They were based in Darby, Pennsylvania. Um, and if you've ever been to a Blue Rocks game at Frawley Stadium, the field is Judy Johnson Field, and there's a statue of Judy Johnson out front. And, um, you know, through digging around a little bit, I learned that Judy Johnson, I mean, his first name was William Julius Johnson. He got the nickname of Judy because his teammates on the Hilldale Club thought his style of play resembled Negro League outfielder Judy Gans, uh, or Gans, G-A-N-S. And I was just like, man, so many rabbit holes to go down. I don't really know what the style of play of Judy Gans was Gans. I don't even know how to pronounce his name, but you know, we still call Judy Johnson, Judy Johnson today because he was a representative of another Judy. Um, so that's what we all love about baseball history going down these rabbit holes and uh, Mississippi Braves are finally going to play as the Atlanta black crackers, which is, you know, one of the most memorably named Negro league teams of all time. Uh, the Atlanta crackers were a team in the Southern association and the black cracker crackers shared the same ballpark. And um, this was originally scheduled for 2020 to play a game as the Atlanta Black Crackers, um, the Mississippi Braves were. That obviously didn't happen. They put it on hold for 2021. It's gotten rained out twice uh, this year, but September 17th, they've now re-re-re-rescheduled Atlanta Black Crackers uh, in Pearl, Mississippi, right outside of Jackson. And um, that will be taking place on September 17th. And that's in partnership with Jackson state university, a historically black institution. And they'll have a lot of historical displays and other things tied into the school. In addition to playing as the Atlanta black crackers. So that's just some of the stuff coming up uh, in, in relation to the Negro leagues and black baseball history. And there's been plenty more of that came from throughout the season. And uh, yeah, so much more to explore. 
Benjamin Hill, you can find on Twitter at Ben's Biz and on Instagram at the Ben's Biz. Uh, travel safely, and uh, we will be looking forward to hearing about the trip next week, man. Thanks. Hey, thank you. Great talking to you guys. And uh, I'm going to go dive into this email we just got about uh, nine Rule Nine Dot Two Two A exceptions in the Appy League, and uh, Sounds- maybe we can talk about that next week. Yeah, really fall- I'm into it. Falling down rabbit holes. Speaking of which, thanks, Ben. One of our, our favorite times of the year. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Here on the Show Before the Show podcast, we are joined by Jim Jaworski, the general manager of the Daytona Tortugas, who on Saturday, September 10th, are hosting their fifth annual Bob Ross night, uh, Bob Ross 5.0. And uh, that's been a big promotion for them for, uh, well, for the last uh, five seasons, of course, not counting 2020, first started in 2017 and uh, gotten a lot of attention all around the country. So let's start at the beginning. Um, 2017 season, you staged Bob Ross night. It immediately went viral. But tell us about, uh, you know, how that came about and and why. Yeah, so it kind of, you know, it, it came to a vote here in the office, right? Um, you know, obviously, much like teams across the country, you're, you know, looking at your schedule for the next year, you're, you're coming up with different promotions, different ideas, different giveaways, so on and so forth. And uh, yeah, you said it. I mean, you know, before that, it was kind of like, yeah, we all know who Bob Ross is, right? We all know, uh, you know, the beautiful paintings that are put together and, and Peapod and, and Happy Little Trees and, and all the above, right? Um, but would it make sense? And, and a part of what made sense for us is that, uh, you know, Bob Ross was from here. He's from the area, um, you know, here in, in Volusia County, in the Daytona Beach area. He has uh, painting classes or, or studios that are here in, in the area as well. So it checked that box, right? Obviously, it checked the, the national box, but then it also checked the local box here. So, um, yeah, that was a part of the decision. Um, you know, like I said, it came down to a vote initially, um, you know, to see who was who was for it and, and and maybe who wasn't for it, not necessarily against it, but certainly who wasn't for it. And yeah, the decision was to, to go ahead and, and do it, put it on the promotional calendar and then execute from there. Um, you know, to me, one of the beautiful things about the, the event is that it wasn't just about the bobblehead, right? Um, it was about the painting classes. It was about us planting a, a happy little tree. And it was about, you know, the color runs and, um, you know, even in the concession stand, we had a paint palette parfait. Um, we had, you know, lookalike and dress up contest. So it checked a lot of those boxes and, you know, it was more than just the bobblehead, although the bobblehead itself is pretty cool. Um, but, but it was certainly more than that. So, um, yeah, then that led of course to, to the golden bobblehead, um, you know, largely I believe because of, of all those boxes were checked. Right. Um, and it was more than than just the bobblehead, which in itself would have been just fine. <laughs> but but it but it was certainly more than that. Um, and then, yeah, throughout the years, we've been able to, to kind of mix it up a little bit to keep it fresh, keep some of the consistencies, um, such as the painting class uh, that's led by Bob Ross certified instructors, um, because, well, that's pretty cool, too. Right. And to be able to do that pregame. Oh, by the way, you get a bobblehead and, and oh, by the way, there happens to be a baseball game going on in the background. Right. So. Um, so, yeah, all the kind of the different levels, the different layers uh, that we've been able to put together throughout the years. Yeah. And you talked about it checking the quote unquote national box. Uh, but even knowing that it probably had interest beyond, uh, you know, the confines of Daytona Beach and Jackie Robinson ballpark, 
Uh, did it surprise you how much attention that the promotion got uh, when it was initially announced? I remember in 2017, you know, just turning on the TV, you know, ESPN, whatever, what have you, and going on Twitter and just all over the place. Uh, it just went viral really quickly. Were you aware of the the love for Bob Ross and his PBS show and just sort of what he represented to not just Daytona Beach, but really all of America, it seems like? No, not at all. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> You know, certainly at the time. Now looking back, you're like, well, yeah, it kind of makes sense, right? And and then there's more and more, you know, T-shirts or socks or um, you know books or you know whatever. There's certainly more now than there was, you know, back in 2017. So, yeah, I mean, at the time, yeah, we, we were surprised, and um, you know, but again, now looking back, it it certainly makes sense. And, and let's jump. Let's jump forward to now, I guess, in terms of what's going to be special for 2022. You guys have talked about needing this to be, you know, fresh and new and, and trying to keep people's interest, both nationally and locally. So what is new for this year? Well, it really comes down to the bobblehead itself had been, I would say, pretty consistent throughout the, the first four years. Um, you know, the first year he was wearing a, a white Tortugas jersey. Um, with us winning the golden bobblehead, then the second year became, um, you know, a golden bobblehead version of the Bob Ross bobblehead. The third year we had just really just mixed up the jersey. Um, and so we had instead of a white jersey, it was a lime green jersey. Um, then the fourth one, um, again, for the sake of, OK, let's let's try and keep it fresh. We did a paint your own uh, Bob Ross bobblehead um, in lieu of, of the painting class, but we still brought in the Bob Ross certified painting instructor, but instead of leading a painting class, she was leaning, leading painting the Bob Ross bobbleheads. Um, so, so that was pretty interesting. And, and again, for the sake of, you know, creating your own, right. And, and having your own masterpiece. Um, and then this one, as we've discussed, you know, this being the last one, um, and, and of course, us being in Florida, it's kind of the, uh, um, you know, the, the relaxed, uh, you know, re retired Bob um, with a uh, with kind of a, a floral shirt, um, you know, some shorts still obviously with the, the paint palette and the brush, um, but a little bit more of the, the Florida Bob uh, uh, this year for the bobblehead design. And, and when you are planning this in the offseason and, and knowing that this was going to be the fifth one and like you just said, potentially the last one. Um, was there any feeling of we need to leave everything out there on the field, like pump as much into this as we can? Like how, how, how once you guys knew this was the final one, how did planning go? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And, you know, throughout the years, we've done uh, a jersey Bob Ross design. We've done um, uh, a T-shirt uh, design that, that we've done in the past, but it was more uh, it was just a plain white T-shirt. It had a Bob Ross painting on the T-shirt. But we set up coloring stations. We set up tie-dye stations. Again, it was kind of make your own creation. Um, and so, yeah, a lot of it just came down to the basics, really. You know, the bobblehead. And then we wanted to make sure that we included the, the painting class and bring that back this year, of course. Um, and then, you know, some of the same concessions and, you know, dress up, you know, contests and that kind of stuff. But, yeah, really it was about just getting back to the basics, um, you know, on this one. And, and, and being able to put it together and, um, you know, have another great, another great bobblehead to the collection. And again, with it being the final one, um, I know you, you don't want to do the same thing every year, kind of run out of ideas, feel an idea, losing steam. But then at the same time, it's been something that's very successful. Um, I imagine not just with 
Bob Ross, but just, you know, your front office and uh, the staff and, and minor league teams across the country. That's a kind of common argument is uh, or, or debate is is how long do you keep going with an idea? And, uh, you know, is that is that a perpetual struggle in making a promotional schedule in terms of when to try something new and when to go with tried and true? I think so. Right. I mean, you know, it's kind of like movies. Right. You know, at, at what point is, is the Fast and Furious going to, you know, stop, stop making movies. Right. Well, that's never. <laughs> <laughs> um, but again, you know, that doesn't mean that that it's, it's not ever going to come back either. Right. Um, you know, kind of to, to use the movie, you know, terminology. Right. The remake or, you know, the return. Right. Um, you know, Michael Jordan came out of retirement. Right. So, um, you know, yeah, I think, you know, something to obviously, you know, still keep in mind. Um, you know, when that fresh idea comes, when that that next, oh, yeah, that's the answer, right? When, when that comes into play, uh, because that's all a part of it. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, that's the the kind of initial thought process and, and the initial game plan, but uh, that doesn't mean it's over, uh, for sure. And this whole Bob Ross promotion uh, and the success you've had with it came about, you know, after seeing and, you know, realizing uh, he was a Daytona Beach native and resident. Uh, are there any other people um, who are from the area that, you know, that your success of this promotion might inspire something else or where you're kind of doing a little research and saying, you know, who else from around here uh, might be worthwhile to honor at the ballpark? Yeah, that's the challenge, right? You know, Vince Carter's from here. Um, you know, he went to high school here. Um, you know, we have a, a good relationship with him and we've done some things, you know, in, in the past, whether it's figurines um, you know, bobbleheads, worked with him and his foundation, um, you know, something along those lines. Um, of course, we have a, a little race uh, that goes on here in town a couple of times a year. Um, so, you know, is it something that ties in with with racing and with the speedway? And, you know, yeah, I think that's the goal and the challenge for all of us is what are those things within our community and, and how can that that make us different? And those are the two things that come to mind immediately. Um, you know, just the same thing with logos, right? And, you know, with new identities and, and with new things and, um, you know, whether it's, um, you know, tying into to history, tying into what's going on here, you know, currently or, or who's from here, as you mentioned, um, all those things are think of things that we think about on a constant basis and to, to try and come up with that next idea, right? And, and with that next slam dunk for sure. Yeah, I just had the thought of, I don't even know what this would be, but the idea of the Tortugas 500 just got me very excited. And I don't even know what it, what the actual concept would be after that. Well, but that's just it, right? When you think of turtles, you don't think of speed, right? Exactly, in fact, right. In fact, you think of the opposite. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think there's some things to, to do to play on that. And and whether it's a logo or, or whether it's whatever the case may be. Um, you know, some of the different weeks that we have here in town, right? Whether it's bike week, whether it's, you know, Jeep Beach week, um, you know, certainly race weeks, um, you know, things that make, you know, Daytona Beach and, and Volusia County different. And to me, that's part of the, the recipe for the secret sauce. Yeah, no, for sure. And, and, and just to circle back to this one more time, uh, just because I'm curious about it, because it's gotten so much national attention, I'm sure you probably had people come from maybe far off distances or some real characters come out to the ballpark on the Bob Ross night. What's the most memorable person you remember coming uh, to a Bob Ross night of older one, you know, is coming to this year's edition. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, it's certainly something that people circle on their calendars, right? Um, you know, win, lose or draw we're, we're coming, um, you know, and, and so it's, 
I wouldn't say so many stories other than just that it's that date, right? And it's that date that people circle on their calendar, rain or shine. I don't care what's going on. I don't care what we're doing. We're going to get the bobblehead. There's also that collect them all element, right? That that has driven that um, th that loyalty and and driven that uh, that eagerness to get it, right? And to say that you have all five bobbleheads is is something to say, right? And that all five bobbleheads are different in their own way, and you know some different stories behind them. Um, again, that's how you build that that excitement. That's how you build that that demand, right? And, and I think that's all what we're looking for um, as we put together our promotion calendars year after year. Well, Jim, before we let you go, um, independent of the promotions, uh, Jackie Robinson Ballpark, uh, I truly do mention it as among my favorites every time I get the inevitable what's your favorite ballpark question. Uh, definitely a special place within baseball and in the Florida State League in that it's the only non-spring training facility. Um, so, yeah, before uh, we close out the interview, you know, what's your kind of elevator pitch to why people should go to Jackie Robinson Ballpark and see the Day Daytona Tortugas? Yeah, it's more than just baseball, right? Um, you know, to think about the history and that that Jackie Robinson played at this very field on March 17th, 1946, um, is, is pretty special. Um, to be on the National Registry of Historic Places, um, oh, by the way, we're in Daytona Beach. Uh, oh, by the way, we're on an island, um, you know, and, and it's a pretty cool spot, you know, and I think, um, you know, the, the intimacy of the ballpark, you know, really, really makes it special. Um, then to be able to see the, the history with, with not only Jackie Robinson, of, of course, that's the, the headline, but his time here in Daytona Beach and the relationship with Mary McLeod Bethune and, you know, just the, that whole story and how everything was put together. Um, it's pretty special. And, and oh, by the way, you'll get a nice little breeze off the ocean and, and we'll have some fun too while I watch a baseball game or, or maybe do some lawn bowling, right? Um, you know, a, a little bit of everything. Um, but yeah, anytime, come on down, open invitation. Yeah, I did do some lawn bowling, uh, last time I was in Daytona on a uh, big shell Bowski <laughs> night. Right. Uh, but on uh, Saturday, September 10th, the, um, Bob Ross 5.0, the fifth and final, at least for now, Bob Ross night is happening and I'm sure it'll be a great night at the ballpark. Uh, Jim Jaworski. Thanks so much for joining us on the uh, show before the show podcast. Thanks guys. We'll see you soon. Rolling along on this week's episode of the show before the show. Big thanks to uh, Sam and Ben for tackling the interview segment this week. As by the time you're hearing this, I'll be knee deep and gallivanting uh, around another location. So I have to pretend like I'm, you know, taking part in the whole episode when really these dudes just carry all the weight, uh, as I have explained many times before. But it is time for Sam and me to discuss some things on the field in a little segment we like to call three strikes. That sounded like I had like a big intro, like liner, like a song, a thing that would play. It won't. We don't have that. Uh, so let's just dive in for strike one on this week's episode of the show before the show. More call-ups coming, more call-ups done, more call-ups in progress. Uh, we're going to talk about three big ones in the uh, last week of Major League Baseball action, and they are... A uh, guy who I know a lot of Boston Red Sox fans have been waiting for for a very long time. It feels like it really hasn't been that long of a time because he's still that young. But Tristan Casas is up with the big league club. He was sunbathing at Fenway Park in like 
like shorts and no shirt laying on the grass in the outfield uh, to, to soak in his first major league uh, scenery. Oswald Peraza is now up with the New York Yankees and Hunter Brown has joined the operation of the Houston Astros as those team, those three teams uh, make their end of season push uh, a little bit different scenario there for the, the Yankees and the Astros um, than it is for the Red Sox, but still obviously a, a team that is in contention year after year and wants to know what they've got in a guy like Tristan Casas, who uh, makes the jump to the big league level. Sam, give us your thoughts to these three. You got two guys who are joining uh, postseason races in Peraza and Brown. Hunter Brown goes out, was great in his first start as a big leaguer. Um, Oswald Peraza is already making an impact, but run us through, uh, the, the things that are most front of mind for you with these guys getting their calls to the show. Yeah. I hadn't really thought about it, out it about it this way until you put it that way. But when you think about it, we have them ranked, right? Casas is first, then Peraza, then Brown, but you would almost flip it for like, who's going to have the most impact right. this season just because of where they're going up to where they're being placed, not necessarily just their pure talent level. Like Tristan Costas getting called up certainly earned that look. He dealt with a little bit of an ankle injury this year. Uh, not a little bit of an ankle injury, an ankle injury that kept him out of AAA Worcester for a good long while came back, was hitting around 300 again, putting it up an OPS around 900. Um, the approach has always been advanced. The guy has an approach beyond his years. Um, always, used to make headlines or, you know, his, you would see videos come out every once in a while for his two strike approach in which he would spread out wide and really choke up on the bat. Um, the guy does not like striking out, which is not really a modern thing these days, especially for slugging versus baseman like himself. We've already seen him hit a home run the other night at the trop down in St. Petersburg facing the Rays. Um, so we know the power plays, but he's just basically coming up to get his feet wet. I mean, he is the future of the first base position for the Red Sox. They've had some struggles at first base this year. I know they picked up Eric Hosmer at the trade deadline. Uh, and it's kind of funny. Both of those guys come from the same town in Florida. Uh, they're both six foot four left-handed first baseman. So now two guys like that on the Red Sox roster. Um, but Tristan Costa is the future of that position. He feels the position well. It, but any results he puts up right now is just gravy. This is getting him ready to be the opening day first baseman next year. Alex Cora has said he is going to be playing every day. Uh, even against left-handers, and some of his splits can get a little ugly, but they want him getting that, uh, those looks, those opportunities, uh, those chances to improve and carry that into the offseason. You mentioned Hunter Brown, really solid first start for the Astros. Uh, the big question for him was, was control. The stuff has always been really good for Hunter Brown. Seemed to be there in his first start the other day, uh, which is great for him. Um, you know, looking at what he did, six innings pitch, five strikeouts, only one walk, gave up three hits against the Rangers on September 5th. So that was on Monday on Labor Day. Uh, the stuff, as I mentioned, we always believed in the stuff when we were evaluating, but that played 96 mile an hour fastball. That was the average on the heater uh, in that game. He also flipped in some curveballs against left-handers in particular. Also had a cutter at 93 miles an hour. It was originally called a slider. It's a little bit more of a cutter. Uh, but yeah, 93 miles an hour on a breaking pitch is just insane. We're seeing more and more of that, but Hunter Brown is certainly going to play with that stuff. It's just going to be how much is he going to find the zone? If he's walking only one in six innings, you know, he's going to force his way into the rotation conversation for the Astros uh, down the stretch. I think probably the best case scenario is that he is a long man out of the bullpen come postseason time and, and you don't need him making big starts a month after his major league debut, but the more starts he makes like that one, 
the the more they're going to have to consider him as a potential game three, game four starter if they make it deeper into the playoffs. Uh, and good on him for earning that look. Oswald Peraza basically came up out of necessity for the Yankees. The Yankees have had real struggles this year at the shortstop position in particular. Isaiah Kiner-Falefa has not really been a solution for them there. He can play defense at short, um, but hitting has not been there whatsoever. There was even some talk that maybe they would consider Anthony Volpe uh, jumping right over Peraza and going from double A straight to the majors because he is the better hitter. Uh, but Peraza gets that look. He's earned it. He's been at triple A all year. If you are having questions about shortstop, bring up the guy who's been one stop away the whole time. Um, he's not going to be much more than an average bat at best down the stretch, but his defense is major league ready. He can play both short or second base. Glaber Torres hasn't been great for the Yankees either. Um, so if they want to try him at second base and really go for an all world middle infield uh, duo between him and Kiner Falefa, that could work. He gives them just another option. The, the Yankees need a shot in the arm, which is crazy to say, given how they started the year and how we thought we were, they were all going to walk away with the AL East. That's not happening now. And the trade deadline is passed. They can't go out and get another shortstop. So bring up the top 100 prospect you have at, at the position. Is Praza going to be a short-term solution? We're still in small sample territory. I just he could hit. I, I just don't quite see how he's going to be a masher straight away, but he could be. He could be better than Connor Falefa this year, that's for sure. Uh, and at least provide some you know solid production, if nothing else, at that spot. So keep an eye out for that guy. Uh, we could still be getting more pr promotions down the stretch. We'll see. Uh this is not by any means over. Uh, we're still waiting for Josh Young of the Texas Rangers. Is he going to get a call up? That was a big rumor at the start of September. Here we are on September 7th, the day we're recording. He hasn't been called up yet. There could be more coming, but this was a pretty good solid group of three uh, this last week. Do you think um, that there is any opportunity, and I'm I'm dropping the uh, the singular drop of blood in the water, that is full of insane Yankees fans who are going to go nuts uh, with this conversation. Do you think that there is any situation in which Anthony Volpe goes up this year? Because Peraza moving up, open a spot. He goes to Scranton Wilkesbury. He has been amazing right. so far for the Rail Riders, albeit it's four games, but he's got eight hits in his first 17 at bats. Um, is there a situation? He is still extremely young. Uh, he just turned 21 back in April, but he is the guy. I mean, that is the guy that the New York media has already crowned as the next Jeter. Uh, is there a circumstance in which Peraza maybe struggles? You still need production. You're in this playoff race and they look at him. There is an off chance. I will say this is definitely never say never territory. Um, I think if Volpe is to get a look, I think it's probably going to take an injury to make that happen. And we should say, like, the, the roster rules are that you have to be on the 40-man before now. Like, you, you have to have been on the 40-man, I think, by September, maybe it's the end of, day, the end of the day, in August 31st, to be eligible for the postseason. That being said, teams have gotten around that in the past. And usually what the way you get around it is you have to petition the commissioner's office. You have to say, this guy is replacing an injured player. So if Kiner Falefa gets injured, if Glaber Torres gets injured or Peraza and the Yankees are like, hey, this guy's injured, we're bringing up Anthony Volpe, please consider him for the postseason. It'll get through. Like it, Interesting. The, the commissioner's office isn't going to get in the way of that. But it's going to take something like that 
to happen. You're not just going to bring them up and say, hey, we brought him up because we felt like it. Please say yes. Um, you can bring him up at any time. It's just the postseason eligibility. And that being said, I think the gap between double A and triple A isn't as big as it maybe once was. So him being at double A all year doesn't mean like, oh, well, we need to see you hit triple A pitching. I think he could probably handle it as well as Peraza has. It's just you're not going to be like freaking out after two weeks of Peraza. He need he again, he's been at triple A all year. He's earned a longer look. He's earned not freaking out after two right, weeks. Right. And we're getting to the point where the season's almost over. <laughs> like at the point yeah. in which you would freak out is probably the first week of the postseason. Yeah. Um, so I think the time's kind of run out on Anthony Volpe. But again, if an injury happens and the Yankees are looking around and being like, hey, we're short on shortstop options, let's go for it. I I I think he's talented enough to handle it as well as Braza could. Um, but I don't want to put like a percentage on it just because I think it is injury related for that to happen. Hi, everybody. It's Sam just jumping in here real quick uh, to provide an update. Uh, since we recorded this, as we've said a few times on the show this week, we recorded on Wednesday. And then right after we were done recording, news broke that Josh Young is actually getting called up by the Texas Rangers. He's expected to make his debut for Texas on Friday. Uh, I had just speculated he was another name we were waiting for. Now we know that that is happening. Uh, Young probably would have been called up earlier in the year. I can almost guarantee that, in fact, if not for off-season shoulder surgery that kept him out for large swaths of the year. 23 games this season at AAA Round Rock hit 273, 321, 525. The power has certainly played so far in his return from the shoulder injury, six homers in those 23 games. Uh, Young is always going to be a bat-first type. We actually talked to the Round Rock broadcaster, Mike Caps last week. You can go back and listen to that interview. We interviewed Josh Young himself a while back as well. Go listen back to that before he debuts for Texas. Uh, but it's a bat-first profile. He features at third base. He'll be okay there. He has the arm for it. Um, could maybe even see him moving to first eventually someday, although the Rangers right now have Nathaniel Lowe at first base, and that is going to be a really promising infield. Lowe at first, Marcus Semien at, at second base, Corey Seager at short, Josh Young at third. It's been a difficult year in Arlington, but this is going to give it potentially a much brighter ending. One other one I want to update you guys on as well, another player – in our MLB Pipeline Top 100, who debuted this week after we recorded on Wednesday, Alec Burleson of the Cardinals system, uh, number 92 in our Top 100. Alec Burleson this season leads all AAA qualifiers with a 331 average for AAA Memphis. Uh, for me, it's going to be hit tool over power, although he does have some power. He has back-to-back 20 homer seasons in the card system. Um, doesn't strike out a ton, kind of a little bit of a different modern hitter. Uh, is not overly swinging, has a good two-strike approach. You can see him shorten up his swing. He basically switches to a toe tap with two strikes. Uh, Not the greatest defender in the world. Has the arm. He actually pitched in college at East Carolina, uh, so he could feature in right, which is where he made his first start for the cards. But he's been mostly limited to left field this year at Memphis. I expect him to be more of a left-handed option off the bench. Could get some DH starts against right-handed pitching. Kind of think of it as a reverse Albert Pujols. Albert Pujols has been great at hitting left-handed pitching 
uh, this season for the Cardinals, especially of late. Burleson could do that against right-handers. Uh, he's probably going to be a fourth outfield type, but you might see him get some starts as he did on Thursday. So those are two top 100 prospects who have gotten called up after we had our discussion on Wednesday. Like I had just said, there's still the potential for more to get called up. I think Young was the next big name we were waiting for now that that has happened. I don't anticipate something big happening, but who knows? We've been surprised before, and there's still plenty of season left. So keep it tuned for more of that. But now I'm going to send it back to Tyler and me, picking it up uh, with the rest of three strikes from Wednesday. Strike two this week. We are steamrolling our way toward the minor league postseason as clinches continue to pile up for playoff berths, and we've got them all for you at MILB.com. Just last night in the Carolina League's North Division, the Fredericksburg Nationals won their second half division title, their first postseason berth since relocating from uh, Woodbridge, Virginia, where they were the Potomac Nationals, to Fredericksburg. They are 72-54 and on the year. They're 18 games over 500 uh, at 39-21 and in the second half. The Inland Empire 66ers winning the South Division in the California League, second half champions there. California League North Division, the Fresno Grizzlies, um, who got boosted by a big uh, performance from Benny Montgomery, a first-round pick a year ago, with a home run and five RBIs. Uh, San Jose Giants are headed to the playoffs in the California League with a playoff berth there, the Palm Beach Cardinals and the Florida State League. There are all kinds of clinchings still happening, and the minor league playoffs are uh, on the very near horizon. Yeah, I mean, we should say like single A ball and high A ball are both ending on Sunday, uh, which both feels very soon and also kind of late because we're past Labor Day now. Uh, it's it's going to take me a few years to get used to that uh, if this is a calendar that continues years down the line. But yeah, we're we're coming up fast on single A and high A postseason will beginning be beginning next week. Um, so we'll have a lot to discuss then. Who's closing in on titles um, at that point? But check out milb.com. We will be updating all the clinchings. There is a clinchings roundup every day. Uh, you know the leagues are wide and vast, as everybody knows. A lot of these are second half titles. A lot of teams are just punching their playoff ticket flat out. Like you don't have to necessarily win a second half division. Um, there's lots of scenarios. It's It can be tough to keep track of all of it, but we're doing that for you on MILB.com. And that brings us to strike three on this week's episode of the show before the show, which is really just like checking in with a dude because he has been so good. Uh, Andrew Painter, the top prospect in the Philadelphia Phillies organization on the pitching side, has been ridiculous this year uh, for the Phillies. And I know we've touched on Andrew Painter a couple of times this year, but we haven't really dived into just how great he's been this season. Uh, He's been at three different levels this year. Started the season at single A with Clearwater, made nine starts there, jumped up to high A with Jersey Shore, and was even better somehow at Jersey Shore than he was at Clearwater. Now he's at double A with Redding. Through three starts there, he has been pretty much as good as he has been everywhere else. His numbers this year just combined across those three levels, a five and one record, a 1.24 ERA, a 0.86 whip opponents are batting 170 against him. He has struck out 141 batters while walking 24 in 94 and two thirds innings pitched. So let that wash over you. He's basically got a six to one strikeout to walks ratio uh, and an ERA of just under one and a quarter for the season in 94 and two thirds innings. His year has been historic uh, in a lot of ways. He's 19 years old, too. Yeah, he's 19 years old. You know, this is his first full season. Seems to be getting stronger as the season's going on. You mentioned that his numbers at Reading have been really strong, but you look at his last start. 
uh, for Reading, which came on uh, September 3rd, so last week against Hartford, only gave up one run on eight hits, struck out nine, walked nobody in seven innings. Usually with these guys at the end of their first full season, we're talking about innings limits. We're talking about coming out after the third or fourth inning. I know Ricky Tiedemann of the Blue Jays system has been shut down, not for anything bad, but just because he hit that innings limit. Andrew Painter's still throwing into the seventh inning late in September. I mean, we're late in the season, but now we're in September and he's throwing into the seventh inning and he's still putting up an ERA, like you said, below one and a quarter. Um, The reason I wanted to bring him up this week is because I want to see how low that ERA can go before the season is up. Um, As it stands right now, he does not qualify for the minor league wide ERA title. But he does have the lowest ERA among anybody with at least 90 innings. He's thrown 94 and two-thirds, as you said, Tyler. His 1.24 ERA is the lowest of any minor leaguer with at least 98 innings in a single season since 2016 when Ben Holmes had a 1.18 ERA in 2016. Think about all the great pitchers we've had in the last six years all the great pitching prospects, all the great seasons we we witnessed. Mackenzie Gore a couple years back, right before the pandemic, looked like he had an all-time season. Andrew Painter has a lower ERA than Mackenzie Gore did. Um, it it's really something special that he's putting on here. You know, when we put together the, the top 100 and you're debating how high do you want to go with Andrew Painter, didn't hear a bad thing about him. Uh, the velo is playing certainly right now. He's got plenty of size at six foot seven. Uh, he's got good control for that height. Normally, big pitchers like that, you talk about limbs flying all over the place, seems well within control of his body. Above average curveball, above average changeup. He has a slider as well. Uh, it's a full four pitch mix. Uh, you know, I was talking to Jonathan Mayo earlier this week. I feel like we could get to a point maybe. By the end of next year, maybe by the time we're doing midseason updates, Andrew Painter could be the top pitching prospect in baseball. And if that's the case, we might see him in Philly next year, shortly after his 20th birthday. He turns 20 in April. That's insane. We don't talk about pitching prospects in that way. Uh, It usually takes years for these guys to get this level, but he's blowing past all expectations. So that's three strikes for this week's episode of the show before the show. And we are back to wrap this thing up on the other side. Our final segment of this week's episode of the show before the show, MILB.TV is where you can catch the minor league postseason. Sam, uh, we don't really have the easy picks because there's playoff games galore next week. Hey, I was going to say, do you want to go on three again and just say the games we're picking, which is just, just <laughs> us yelling you playoffs into it? Yeah. No, I, I think it's, you know, the, we mentioned before, there are still clinchings happening by the time we're recording this and by the time you guys hear this on friday more teams will have clinched a lot of games are coming to milb.tv whether you are fans of the farm system or not it's just good competitive baseball i mean these guys yeah. play all season long how many players have we talked to over the years where it's just like what are, what are you hoping to accomplish i want a ring like if you're going to play yeah. from april through september you want it to be for something and that's what these games are it may seem silly to to talk about like a Carolina league semifinal, but those what those what that is what those guys are playing towards yeah. all year round. It means a lot um, for those and, guys. Yeah. And you can feel it, whether there's a lot of people in the stands or not, like you can sense it on the field. So tune into any playoff game you can find starting next week. And then we'll have double a playoffs up to that. And the triple a triple championship is just around the corner as well. 
and uh, we'll be talking to you again before this starts. But starting next Friday, 7 a.m. and 1 p.m., I believe, Eastern time are our first pitch times for the first World Baseball Classic qualifying games of 2022. So I'll be on the call on MLB.com uh, with Ryan Roland-Smith, formerly of the uh, the Seattle Mariners and the Arizona Diamondbacks. And uh, he and I will be on the call for those. So we'll kick things off in Regensburg on Friday. And uh, you can tune in to all those games at MLB.com. And I believe not only on the uh, WBS or the WBC YouTube, but also uh, on MLB.tv. I think they're going to try to incorporate those uh, into MLB.tv as well. So a bunch of ways for you to watch prospects from the the more non-traditional uh, baseball output spots. And uh, that'll do it for this week's episode of the show before the show. He's Sam Dykstra. I'm Tyler Mon. We'll talk to you next week. 